Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. We're video streaming it. Our theme today is, what could we do if we've been vaccinated and now have some concerns? Maybe we've had side effects or we fear potential side effects now that we're seeing a larger, more honest picture of how much damage it has occurred in those people who've taken the vaccines. Of course, that depends upon whether you've had one, two, three, four, or more. And to bring us this insight, these information pieces, and what we can do to, in effect, rebalance, stimulate uh, the natural immune response, and wherever possible, lessen the negative impact of the spike protein in our cells, we've invited one of America's leading physicians and scientists, unique in that it has three board certifications in three different areas, unique that of all the medical doctors in the United States, his work is not only one of the most cited, but is one of the most respected. People use his work in their own clinical practices. And now he is a part of a group, a consortium of physicians, all board certified, who were all uh, initially for what was being done until they started seeing that it didn't match good clinical practice and certainly didn't match good clinical science. And so they challenged it. For that, they have taken a, a real beating. And unfortunately, the American media has not been honest, objective in seeking the truth. And now to my guest, Dr. Paul Merrick. Uh, Dr. Merrick, thank you for being with us today. For those of you who may not know of your work, uh, your distinguished position within the medical community, one of the most cited, if not the most cited physician scientist in your specialization in the whole world, and in effect, the, one of the most outstanding physicians because of your innovative nature, could you please give us your background to show people the irony of someone who has done so much has now been attacked also by the very establishment that you served. Sure. Thank you, Gary. Yeah. So um, I, I did medical school in South Africa. I then specialized in internal medicine in South Africa. I then did this, uh, critical care in South Africa as a specialist. I worked at Baruch Hospital, which is probably one of the largest hospitals in the world, a 5,000 bed hospital. I then decided to, you know, pursue um, further academic training. So I did a fellowship in critical care medicine in London, Ontario, Canada, and was admitted as a fellow of the College of, uh, of Medicine and Surgeons of Canada. I then moved to the U.S. I've been here almost 30 years. I've worked in various teaching hospitals. I am quadruple boarded in internal medicine, critical care, neurocritical care, as well as nutrition support. Although I must say that the American Board of Internal Medicine is going after me, as well as my colleagues. And because they, they're claiming I'm um, propagating misinformation, which is actually the truth, they are threatening to remove my board certifications. I was until recently a tenured professor at a medical school in Norfolk. In fact, I was the only tenured professor in the department. Um, uh, my goal, well, how this actually started in 2020, when COVID came to the shores of the US, the treatment algorithm proposed by the NIH and the WHO 
was supportive care. And supportive care means no care. And obviously, as a physician at the bedside, that's a complete absurdity and a dereliction of your duty. You have to do something. And we knew the mortality in New York at that time was about 80 to 90%. So what I did is I developed a protocol for the uh, treatment of in-hospital patients with uh, COVID. I then collaborated with some of my colleagues and we developed the Math Plus protocol which is widely used and has been shown to be life-saving. And then about uh, August, October 2021, my hospital decided that they were prohibiting me treating my patients with the medicines that I deemed appropriate. These were FDA-approved off-label drugs that had been successfully used to treat my patients, including vitamin C, they deemed that I was not allowed to use these medications and I was banned. I was banned from uh, using these medications. They were essentially forcing me to use remdesivir, which as we know, and there's no question of doubt, uh, increases your risk of kidney failure over 20-fold and increases your risk of death. But the federal government gives hospitals a bonus. So, you know, along... Uh, I had no option but to try and sue them. I didn't really prevail. So, you know, I was uh, forced to resign. In the meantime, you know, we had developed protocols for the early treatment of COVID because uh, contrary to what the agencies tell you, COVID is a highly treatable disease. There are multiple drugs that can treat this disease. If you look at C C19 early meta-analysis, there are at least 20 or 25 drugs that have been proven efficacious for the treatment of early COVID, but the agencies and the NIH obviously uh, pretend these drugs don't exist and this data doesn't exist. And so more recently, we've been focusing on long COVID and the vaccine injured. Um, the vaccine injured is a major issue. And, um, you know, we, we can talk further about this. So really, that's what I've been doing. I was forced to quit um, the practice of medicine um, because I wasn't uh, allowed to practice medicine. Uh, I was prohibited doing what, doc what doctors do is treat their patients. The hospital and hospital administrators were basically interfering with the patient-doctor relationship and telling doctors how to practice medicine, which goes against the complete Hippocratic principle of medicine. So I actually was forced to give up practicing medicine and our focus on developing protocols to help patients and help doctors to treat spike-related disease. Um, so that's a brief synopsis of my journey. How many articles have you published in the peer-reviewed literature? Yeah, over 500 uh, papers in the peer-reviewed literature. Um, I have an H index of 107 which is a balance between how many papers you've published and how well it's cited. Most, and I'm not bragging here, I mean, this is the truth and verifiable. Most Nobel laureates have an H index of about 40. So an H index of 107 uh, means that I'm, you know, exceedingly published, but more importantly, people recognize the value of my publications. Would you... Take us through some of the problems that we're now seeing that we were told were not a problem at the beginning. It was safe and effective, 95% safe. And if you got the vaccine, you would not 
get the virus and you would not spread it to other people. Also minor injuries, maybe some redness, soreness in the deltoid muscle. Now we're seeing that there are over a thousand different types of side effects, including something that is uh, unique that we've never seen before, and that is self-organizing lipid materials in the arteries and veins that the mainstream scientific community has refused to discuss or investigate. And yet coroners and morticians are finding this in a high percentage of the bodies that they are embalming. So could you go through some of the problems that we're seeing that we did not anticipate and some of the things they knew would be likely happening and they wanted to keep that secret, but now it's coming out. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll speak before we get to the vaccines about all the lies that have been perpetuated, because essentially the federal government and the state agencies have lied about everything. They lied about where the virus came from. They lied about the masks. They lied about lockdowns. They lied about early therapy. They lied about remdesivir. And probably the biggest and most catastrophic lie is that vaccines are safe and effective. We know they're not safe and we know they're not effective. So, you know, the FDA and Pfizer try to bury the data for 75 years to prevent it being released. And the only reason they would do that is they, they wanted to hide the data. They didn't want people to see the data. So there was a Freedom of Information Act suit and there was release of data. The first release showed that in the first three months after the after the introduction of the vaccine, the first three months, there were 1,200 deaths. Let me say that. 1,200 deaths directly related to the vaccine. And there were over 42,000 serious adverse events. This is in Pfizer's own data. This is Pfizer's own data. Over 42,000 events, serious events, of which Pfizer themselves classified half of them as serious the list of medical conditions actually associated with the vaccines goes on for eight different pages. So we knew within three months of the release of the um, vaccine, this was neither safe nor effective. And the data has just grown and grown since then. Whatever database you look at, we can see the, the devastation this vaccine. This is probably the um, most single most dangerous um, medical intervention. Maybe the smallpox, so-called smallpox vaccine, killed as many people, but this comes very close second. Um, you know, it was not adequately tested. It was rushed to market. It's not a vaccine. A vaccine is when you give a patient an antigen. This is genetic therapy, the consequences of which were never tested. We know that the it's not been tested. It was never tested in pregnant women. It was not tested in children. It was not tested in people with comorbidities. We know that the uh, miscarriage rate in women who get this vaccine is close to 70 to 80%. We know the fertility amongst women who have received this has declined exponentially across the world. And so there is new data you know, you know, you, you have to be blind not to hear about died suddenly. You, you, you open the newspaper, whatever social media, you hear about all these young people that died suddenly, died suddenly, unexplained death, died suddenly. 
And the insurance data validates this because, you know, these, these, are, these are, you know, the insurance companies basically insure people that have a livelihood, that go to work, that are essentially healthy. And there has been over a 140% increase in the risk of death, a 140% increase in the risk of death. In, in people between the ages of 20 and 60. And this is mainly in the um, third quarter of 2020. So how can you explain this? There are all these deaths of athletes on the field. So recently, the V-SAFE data was released by, again, a Freedom of Information Act suit. So V-SAFE was established by the CDC whatever the CDC stands for. So people who were vaccinated were given this app so they could monitor their adverse events. So 10 million people actually use this app. And if we look at the adverse event rate, serious adverse events reported by this database, which the CDC has suppressed, it's like 7% of people vaccinated had a serious adverse event. So that extrapolates to the number of vaccinated people in this country to 18 million, 18 million people. Yet the White House representative, Ashish Shah, has gone on record saying there hasn't been a single case of an adverse event due to the vaccine. It's truly astonishing. So whatever database you use, you can even look at the World Health Organization's Vigi Access database. In their database, there are over 4 million serious adverse events from the vaccine. Probably the most troubling, we know that it causes myocarditis, particularly in young people, particularly in young men. So, you know, a lot of the data is observational, but there was a very, very well done study in Thailand where they prospectively followed school age kids who were vaccinated with the mRNA vaccine, prospectively followed them. And what they found was 30% of kids had evidence of myocardial injury. 30%. Can you, can you, it's just mind boggling that our children are being killed, disfigured. And the problem with myocarditis is that, you know, we're not sure about cardiac healing. They may be left with, you know, uh, permanent myocardial damage. So, and these are the deaths we know about. So Steve Kirsch actually has uncovered really fascinating data, which really fits in with these clots and the sudden death. And so most people look at deaths within the first 14 days after the vaccine. And then if someone dies three or four months later after the vaccine, they never draw, connect the dots. Part of the problem with this, with this, vaccine injured is most doctors don't recognize this disease, will not accept it. So what they will say is, you know, there's something wrong with you. I don't know what it is. It's definitely not the vaccine. So physicians refuse to accept the, the association between vaccination and serious injuries, although there are now over 2,400 peer-reviewed journals describing 2,400 peer-reviewed journals describing the adverse events from the vaccine. Doctors are refusing to accept it. So what, what Steve Kirsch actually figured out, which is very important, is that there's this early peak in deaths in about for the first 1 to 14 days. Then there is a late peak. 
And the late peak of deaths is much higher than the first peak and about five months after the vaccine. And this seems to be a consistent finding. And this is associated with the height of the clotting. You know, we've seen these reports of embalmers pulling out these very large, thick, fibrous clots. So what happens is um, the spike protein activates clotting, and this becomes a progressive disease. It, active, it damages the endothelium and eventually leads to clotting in the blood vessels. The most important are the brain causing strokes and in the heart causing myocardial infarction or heart attacks. So a really good example is Asim Malhotra, who's this now you know, famous British cardiologist who was very much in favor of the vaccines. And then his father was vaccinated and he was a very healthy man with no underlying heart disease. Five months after the vaccine, he died of a heart attack. So what did he do? He got an autopsy to try to figure it out. And he found that his father died from a spike-related thrombosis of his coronary arteries exactly five months after the vaccine. And this is what the vaccine does. The spike protein initiates a clotting cascade, which will cause clotting, as I said, in the brain and in the heart, calling, causing people to die suddenly. Die suddenly. And so people are not making the association between the vaccine and the sudden death. And what's really fascinating is I received data from the Virginia Department of Health a few or four days ago, and it shows exactly the same thing. There are two spikes in death. So most of their data is bogus because they don't want to recognize that the vaccine injures. But death's a death. You, you know, if someone dies, you have, to, you have to count it as a death. And again, astonishingly, there is a two spikes in the death, two unexplained death spikes. And both of these spikes follow per precisely after the peak of vaccination. So the peak of vaccination was in about April 220. The peak of deaths was in September 220. Then there was again another spike in vaccinations in about August, September. And again, we have another spike in deaths in February, March 221. So this is a really serious problem. Um, there are, as I said, millions of patients who vaccine injured. The number of people that have been killed by the vaccine, we really don't know because they don't want to count them. You know, at least over 100,000 people have died from the vaccine. And yet they consider them safe and effective. Safe and effective, even in pregnancy, even in children. Uh, to vaccinate a child is, is nothing more than a crime against humanity. We know the risk of a child dying of COVID is infinitesimal. In Massachusetts, for example, there wasn't a single child who died from COVID. Children are much more likely to die in the swimming pool or on their bicycle. So instead of vaccinating them, they should remove all bicycles from this country. That would be more effective. Vaccinating a child against a disease that they're not going to get and which is going to harm them. And this is their future because they may not get rid of the spike. It will interfere in women, their fertility. It increases the risk of cancer. We know definitively, categorically, that the spike protein interferes with the ability of the host to protect against cancer. 
So there has been a massive upsurge in people with cancer who have been vaccinated. So, you know, the list goes on and on. And, you know, it's about time people wake up because they are so, have been so indoctrinated and blackmailed and cannot see what's going on. It's right in front of their eyes. Just look, look at the newspaper. Died suddenly, died suddenly in their sleep, died suddenly. This is not a normal phenomenon. Young people just don't die suddenly. And so there must be a reason. And the reason is absolutely clear. It's the vaccine. In the past, people simply accepted that if there was a side effect, it was minor, even if it was the major amount of uh, death and, and destruction to a body, they set it aside. They didn't pay attention. It wasn't heralded in any news stories. So we kept with the myth that everything is safe and effective. Now we can't do that any longer. So what can we do in a responsible and reasonable way that is based upon good clinical experience and also data from the Library of Medicine on nutrients and other therapies that have been shown to both help the immune system so a person is if they are infected by any virus, is less likely to succumb because their immune system is stronger. And also, can we at this time help the body that has been vaccinated to lessen the degree of damage that could occur in that, not knowing if a person's had one, two, three, four, even five um, shots. And they're recommending now that the uh, COVID vaccine be put on mandatory vaccine schedules for children, meaning a child will end up getting this every single year. So they could end up getting, let's say, 18 of these uh, throughout their, their career, including going into college. So that would be devastating. My hope is that all this is exposed and deconstructed prior to that happening, but it's already going to go forward in California and other states. What can we do to help people who now are saying, is there, I took the vaccine, a person will say, because I trusted that I was doing the right thing, being conscientious. Now, suddenly I'm hearing all these studies that we didn't know about, all these side effects that I never heard about, was not told about, and I want to protect myself. What can we do? Could you share those protocols with us? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. The first and most important is not to be vaccinated again, not to be boosted because we know the risk of adverse events, the risk of organ failure, the risk of death is related to the more times you vaccinated. So don't be boosted again. And paradoxically, if you are boosted, it increases your risk of getting COVID. Let me say that again. It actually has negative efficacy. It increases your risk of COVID and adverse events. So the most important thing is to reduce your load of spike protein because it's the load of spike protein. The more spike protein you have in the body, the more the adverse events. So stop the vaccination. Secondly, if you get COVID, it's really important to be treated early because that then reduces again the spike load. So, you know, it's very important, particularly if you are vaccine injured, to be treated early because we know that the more spike you expose to, the worse the outcome. So in response to the question, those people who were misled and vaccinated, what, what, what can they do? So what we know is there's data which shows that the risk of adverse events is very much dependent on the lot, the batch of vaccine that you received. 
So there are certain batches that have a thousandfold higher increased risk of getting um, adverse events. And this may be related, related to some shenanigans that Pfizer Moderna pulled that may be related to quality assurance because many of the vials may not have actual viable RNA. Um, some of the vials may have placebo. So as a general rule, if you were vaccinated and have no adverse events, and there's a whole long list of adverse events, and if people want to see what the list is, they can, you know, we have a document at FLCCC, FLCCC, which lists all the adverse events. But most patients will be familiar. You know, you have to put the two together. You know, someone gets a vaccine and then within a few days or week develops abnormal symptoms. The most common is neurological. They have brain fog, difficulty thinking, difficulty doing tasks, difficulty in memory. They may have... Um, shooting pains in their legs, they may have palpitations. So there are a whole host of adverse events. So if people were lucky enough to escape getting those events, then they should consider themselves lucky. And apart from a general healthy lifestyle, which we'll talk about, they should just, you know, they, they played Russian roulette, they won, and should just make sure they don't get spike again. Those people, unfortunately, who were, do develop adverse events, the, the good news is they are things you can do. So, you know, we want to give these people hope because the medical community doesn't recognize this disease. Most doctors are completely clueless and do not know how to treat spike-related disease. So we call this spike-related disease. We should be clear that some of the problems actually due to the nanoparticle because the nanoparticle has this lipid with polyethylene glycol. So many people, the immediate reaction, often the sudden cardiac arrest, is due to an allergic reaction to the polyethylene glycol. Uh, what the role is of all the other contaminants in the vaccine, we don't know. But we know that spike is important. And how do we know this? Because there are people like Ryan Cole who have done autopsies on these people there are German pathologists who have done autopsy and they find spike protein. They can stain for spike protein. They find spike protein in every single organ. So the bottom line then is how do you get rid of spike? And so you have to be careful of these charlatans who are going to try and propose to you some kind of a detox process. It simply doesn't work because the spike protein is in the cell. The spike protein is in the cell. So what you have to do is get rid of the spike from in the cell. And what just so happens, the cell has a remarkable capacity for self-healing, self-regeneration, and getting rid of bad proteins, misfolded proteins, um, old proteins. And it's a process called autophagy or autophagy. So yeast cells do this, all multinucleated cells do this, all animals do this. This is a way the cell itself heals itself and gets rid of garbage out of the cell. It's a process called autophagy or autophagy. And the best way of activating autophagy is what we call intermittent fasting. So, you know, most of, most of us Western people have a terrible diet. We eat all the time. And that does a that switches off the autophagy process. It cannot work. 
So what people need to do is they need to change their diet. So they do intermittent fasting. So they would, what that means, then the different ways of doing this time-based eating is basically you would fast for 12 hours and eat for 12 hours. And it's most important that you don't eat within about three to four hours of sleeping because autophagy is very active when you sleep. It's very important for brain function. And if you eat before you go to sleep, you switch that process off. So people have to refigure the way they eat. And this is not a diet. Diets simply do not work. This is a lifestyle change in which we change the way we eat and we change what we eat. Most of us eat processed foods. Processed foods are high in processed carbohydrates and glucose. It's the worst thing for switching off autophagy. So people have to eat a healthy diet. And it's quite simple. If it looks like food, it's food. If it comes in a box with a wrapper and a label, it's not food. It's this simple as that. So what we recommend is some form of intermittent fasting. And, you know, I would strongly recommend the book by Jason Fung. He's an expert on intermittent fasting, explains exactly how to do it. And so we recommend some form of intermittent fasting. We recommend a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, and we recommend limited processed food. The other complete scandal and corruption and is this idea of low fat. It's a complete myth. Saturated fats are actually healthy. Saturated fats are healthy. And this, this propaganda against cholesterol and saturated fat is perpetuated by the food industry to make you want to eat high-carbohydrate foods. So you, what you need to do is intermittent fast. You want to eat real food. You want to have a low-carb, high-fat diet. And that does enormously good things to the brain, enormously good things. And then there are other things we recommend. So there's this, you know, if you spike injured, we recommend... Um, ivermectin. So just to be clear, ivermectin was not made in a factory. Ivermectin is a product of nature. This was produced by a bacterium in a golf course in Japan. So this is a product of nature. It is a truly remarkable molecule. If you were to design a molecule specifically for COVID, it would look like ivermectin. So why is it so powerful? It's powerful because it has potent anti-inflammatory properties. It's potent because it has antiviral properties. It prevents replication of a whole host of RNA viruses. So while the NIH and the CDC and the FDA claim this is a toxic horse dewormer, that's a complete and utter lie. There's overwhelming evidence that it is a very potent antiviral. It's an anti-inflammatory. It's an antioxidant. Interestingly enough, it stimulates autophagy. So it helps with the autophagy process. It binds spike protein to get rid of the spike, and it changes your gut bacteria. So I can tell you about a patient who consulted us a few days ago with long COVID. She couldn't think. She was at school, interfered with her ability to do her schoolwork. We put her on ivermectin. She tells me this is the most miraculous thing that's ever happened to her, from being completely unable to think with brain fog and and poor memory, she's now actually sharper than she ever was. 
So while it's one anecdote, you know, when you hear a thousand or 10,000 anecdotes, it means something. It's a safe medication. The FDA wants you to think it's a toxic dewormer because they're absolutely scared of ivermectin. At what milligram should a person take it? Yes. So for treatment, we recommend about 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. Really important. It's based on your weight. So many of the studies were underdosed. So if you have COVID, we recommend 0.5 milligrams per kilogram for five days. If you have long COVID, we recommend 0.5 milligrams per kilogram for about two weeks and then have a look, see how it goes. If you're going to use it for prophylaxis, because some people use it for prophylaxis, we recommend a dose of 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. It's very safe. The only precaution is people who are taking transplant medication. So people who had an organ transplant are using transplant rejection medication. There is an interaction with these drugs, so you have to be careful. But, you know, all of the dosing is on our website, again, at flccc.net, and it's available. So what we recommend first, intermittent fasting. Second, we recommend ivermectin. Thirdly, we recommend a drug called low-dose naltrexone. So naltrexone is used in people with opiate addictions, but what's really interesting at very low dose, it has very potent anti-inflammatory properties, uh, interferes with the inflammatory cascade, particularly in the brain. So we find that it helps a lot of people who have brain fog. And then I'm going to tell you something really astonishing. It's called sunshine. Uh, people think about don't think about the sun as a as a conduit for treatment. The sun has enormous healing powers, and uh, it's truly astonishing the benefits of sunshine. In fact, there's in the 1918 flu epidemic, the most effective treatment for flu was putting people who are in hospital in the sun. A report from the Massachusetts Attorney General reports that it was the most effective treatment for influenza, reduced the hospital mortality from 40% to 10%. So sunshine. So people need to get sun. They need to walk outside. They need to get exercise. So really, this is about adopting a healthy lifestyle, the way we were evolved to do. You know, we were we lived in a cave. We slept indoors, and then during the daytime, we were outdoors. We did stuff outdoors. We walked. We exposed to the sun. We looked for food. Most of us now spend our time indoor, on the couch, eating nonstop. And so this is part of the reason people get all of these diseases. And then there are some other nutraceuticals you can take. The one is resveratrol, which is a phytochemical found in grapes. And it stimulates autophagy in addition to having anti-inflammatory properties. So all of these are listed on our website. So there are things people can proactively do, proactively do to take control of their health. There are things that physicians can do to enlighten themselves as what to be get done. Because the traditional medical system is of the belief that these people are inventing these di disorders. It's all in their head. They, they're having stress. They're psychotic. They're deluded. And the problem is, if you actually look at the spectrum of symptoms of the vaccine injured, they have on average about 23 different symptoms. So it doesn't follow a traditional pattern of disease recognition. So most doctors are going to say, it's all in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. 
go see a psychiatrist. And this is real disease. So firstly, doctors need to recognize there is something called vaccine injured. There are at least 18 million in this country. And patients need to draw the association between their symptoms and the vaccine. And there are things that they can proactively do to take control of their life. What role do you believe vitamin C, quercetin, zinc, um, magnesium, uh, vitamin A, beta carotene, uh, juicing, fresh juices, uh, orange juice, grapefruit juice. What role do you believe these have also in a protocol? Yes. So very, you ask very important questions and absolutely. So zinc, most Western people, in fact, most people on the planet are zinc deficient. Zinc is very important for cell-mediated immunity. It's very important for warding of uh, viruses. Vitamin C is very important. So it's a stress hormone. All, all, all species on this planet, except humans and guinea pigs, cannot make vitamin C in response to stress. Vitamin C is a stress hormone. So when the body is stressed, it's really important to take vitamin C. We would recommend 500 twice a day. <laughs> Vitamin D is very, very important. It has enormous impact on the immune system. And the data shows that if your vitamin D level is above 50, your chances of dying of COVID are probably less than zero. So this becomes really important in winter as people get less sun exposure, that uh, it's a very simple intervention just taking vitamin D. So these things are really important. And again, they are listed on our website. Um, so, you know, in addition to the things that I've mentioned, you know, people should take a healthy diet. They may want to take you know, vitamin C. They might want to take zinc. We recommend resveratrol. The other thing which is really interesting, and I didn't realize this until recently, are elderberries. So what we may or you may not know is during 220 and 221, influenza and RSV disappeared. It completely disappeared. Now, as we're going into winter, there is a massive surge of influenza and RSV. The data shows this massive surge. So we have this triple threat of COVID, influenza, and RSV, and it's often not clear which one it is. So firstly, let's be, let's open the other scam and, and corruption is Tamiflu. Tamiflu simply does not work. Although the federal government and most European governments have stockpiled billions of dollars of Tamiflu, it simply does not work. It is probably an ineffective antiviral. It may be an antipyretic. It simply doesn't work. But elderberries actually, elderberry syrup or elderberry supplements have been shown multiple in vitro, cellular, and clinical studies to be highly effective against influenza and COVID. There you have it, elderberries. You can get them from your supermarket. You can get it from your pharmacy. You can go to an elderberry store. It's cheap, it's safe, and very effective. So, you know, as we're getting into winter, people should get a stock of elderberries, which they can either take prophylactically or they can keep it in their refrigerator. And when the first onset of a flu-like illness, they can take their elderberries. This is proven by science. You know, we're, not, we're talking about real science, not Fauci science or NIH science. We're talking about real science. Dr. Merrick, um, 
the best way of using elderberries, because it's not, it's seasonal, is uh, much like mulberries are seasonal, is to get the elderberry concentrate. And that way it can last. You put it in the refrigerator, you take a teaspoon each day, you put it into a smoothie, however you want to take it. At the very beginning, before anything was done concerning COVID, the Chinese at two Wuhan hospitals used 24,000 milligrams of intravenous vitamin C, and they had no fatalities. It was very successful. You never heard a thing after that, and yet that was published. Um, and I'm interested in your views on intravenous vitamin C for those who may have long COVID and therefore have a substantially depleted immune response. Yes, yeah, so if you actually have a look at our Math Plus protocol, which was the protocol for the hospitalized patient, Math is methylprednisolone. The A actually is ascorbic acid. So we included intravenous, we knew about the data from Wuhan. We knew about it. We knew they were using high-dose vitamin C. I spoke to many of the practitioners actually in China, and they told us the success they were having with vitamin C. So it was included in our protocol right in the beginning. We took about March and April of 220. It's interesting that my hospital banned me using vitamin C. Banned it. So it is effective. So we still, it's on our protocol for the hospitalized patient. And you're right, we do recommend it in vaccine injured and in uh, patients with long COVID. Because it's a little bit more um, technically difficult because you have to find a practitioner to give it to you, we recommended a second line therapy. So, you know, if you failed the first line therapies, IV vitamin C is on the protocol as a second line therapy for um, long COVID and the vaccine injured. So the way we've stratified it is those, those interventions which are reasonably simple, readily cheap and accessible we are our first priority. Those that are a little bit more resource intensive, we then put a second line. And in terms of second line, we have IV vitamin C, we have hyperbaric oxygen, we have, you know, vibration therapy. So there are a number of second line therapies which we recommend if you're not getting success with the first line. At the very beginning, Richard Gale, my producer, who also, like myself, has a science background, we went to PubMed. Now, we chose only peer-reviewed journals from respected institutions with outstanding results on the immune system figuring that since Fauci and the health authority says, don't do anything except quarantine until you're so sick, you have to go to an emergency room, then why not keep the people as healthy as possible? So we created a protocol for the most common comorbidities because the more, COVID, more comorbidities a person has, the more susceptible they were to having a bad outcome with COVID and the older you were with comorbidities, emphysema, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, as examples. In PubMed, we found thousands, literally thousands of studies, quality studies, clinical studies, not just observational studies, on vitamin D, um, zinc, selenium, uh, magnesium, vitamin C, quercetin, but also in the herbs. 
And the average person was unaware of how powerful herbs were. I used to know a Dr. James Duke. Duke was the head of the USDA's uh, herbal and plant-based medicine division. And he published hundreds of articles, most knowledgeable herbalist in the United States. He was a PhD also. And he actually invited me down to his herbal farm that he showed me all these different herbs. Uh, and at that time, that was in the 1970s, people were interested in herbs. Today, they've forgotten. But look at the herbs that there is substantial, I mean substantial, thousands of studies on. There's information on ginseng, uh, goticola, uh, echinacea, astragalus. So I think that we should, we should also look at those as helping the immune system. And again, it's in the scientific peer review literature. It's not something off the bat, fell off the back of a truck. And yet people have not yet used them. Yeah, I agree with you. These are products of nature and nature doesn't make mistakes. And it's a, it is a good reason that nature has given us these herbs. It's not by accident. So, you know, one of the ones that I could talk about is Nigella sativa, which is a seed in, in, in Middle Eastern Europe. And, you know, there are randomized controlled trials. So, you know, we're not talking about anecdotal data. We're talking about a really well-conducted study using Nigella sativa showing a dramatic reduction in hospitalization and deaths with this herb. So you're absolutely right. And then there's curcumin. Curcumin has been shown, which is, you know, um, turmeric. Uh, turmeric, yes. It's been shown for acute COVID to be highly effective. So there are a number of herbs, and these are products of nature, which have antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties that have been shown scientifically to be very effective for the treatment of COVID. And black, black human seed oil. Yes. And obviously the NIH and the agencies don't want you to know about this because these are not expensive pharma drugs. If people knew about this, they would not want to be vaccinated. If they knew there was effective treatment, they would not want to be vaccinated. So they, that's why they're suppressing this data and creating this false information. The federal government and the FDA, their, their only objective is a needle in every arm. That's all they're interested in. Even though they're not safe and not effective, they just, that's what the agenda is. And if anything interferes with that narrative, they will create false information. One last issue that has not been addressed properly in the media at all. We were told with absolute certainty that masks work. And originally, if you remember, it was any mask. Uh, people would make just like a bandana mask. And we decided to do an in-depth examination of the actual science on masks going back almost 50 years. Because think of all the industries that they have to use masks to work around uh, volatile chemicals, for example. And we found that we could not find supporting evidence that the current masks being used were adequate to trap the virus because of the size of the virus versus the hole in the masks. The idea was relatively simple. If you have a mask that can prevent the virus from getting in, how is oxygen supposed to get in at an, an, an amount that you need? So then they started to argue, well, you, you don't really need that much oxygen. You know, you, you're fine, even if it's uh, instead of 21%, if it's 18, 17, 16. I even had one person yesterday tell me, oh, if you had 5% oxygen, <laughs> no, you have a box if you have 5% oxygen. 
So that was one issue, um, that the masks also had fibrous material that when you breathe, goes into the lung and doesn't leave. It gets a trap in the lung, can cause fibrosis. So they didn't tell us about the actual chemistry of the masks themselves. And then people were rewashing their masks. So here then is my question. What is the likely neurological outcome to our central nerve system and, and neurons in the brain, especially of children who are wearing these masks sometimes eight hours, sometimes the same mask? Now, there has been no discussion about how much oxygen can a child or an adult take, even when I see children playing soccer wearing a mask and before you can have cumulative damage, because there was a very highly respected um, MD, PhD neurologist, and I believe it was Great Britain, who said, we're going to end up with legions of brain disorders in the future because of what is being the master doing to children today. But as far as your experience, you're a scientist, you're a physician, you're the most cited scientist in the world in one particular area, which is unique. Uh, when you consider we have 900,000 more or less scientists and physicians, you know, physicians in the United States and several million scientists, how many can say that? An impeccable reputation. You've looked at the data about masks. Tell us what your impression of looking at the data is concerning overdosing or getting too much carbon dioxide, breathing it back in and the bacteria and viruses with it and too little oxygen coming in. Your thoughts, please. Yeah, so it's a good question. First, I'm not sure if you know that Dr. Fauci was under oath this week and they asked him about masks and he was unable to cite a single study. Dr. Fauci was unable to cite a single study which showed that masks were of any benefit. So let's put that to rest. They simply do not work because the pore size is the virus will just go through the mask. And the reason surgeons wear a mask during operation is not to prevent them getting bacteria or viruses, it's to prevent blood going into their mouth and secretions getting into their mouth from the operative site. So that's why surgeons wear a mask, not because of any other protection. And then you are right, there are studies that have measured the carbon dioxide levels within the mask, and because it interferes with rebreathing, what it actually does is it increases what's called the dead space. So it increases the amount of dead space in the respiratory tree. Um, it kind of extends the trachea. So it does cause the CO2 to go up. The O2 will go down a little bit because the CO2 goes up. What the long-term effects are are difficult to know. But if you look at children, we know that children born after the pandemic are cognitively impaired. They have delayed development, de delayed neurological function delayed milestones compared to pre-pandemic. And this is probably a combination of masks as well as lockdowns and all the other ridiculous things we expose them, them to. So um, the other thing is for children, you know, facial recognition is really important as part of development. Wearing a mask interferes with facial development and, you know, speech and and personality. So the adverse effects of wearing a mask are just enormous. You know, there's the 
direct physiological effects on the CO2, the increasing fiber, but also the effect that it, people hide behind a mask. If you think about it, only thieves and robbers wear masks because they want to hide behind a mask. People don't wear masks. So um, this was a really ill-conceived idea, and it's truly astonishing to me that people still ride around with masks. You see people sitting in their cars alone wearing a mask. It's truly astonishing what, what they're thinking about. And then you see these people that are double-masked and wearing visors. So you're absolutely right. The masks do not work. Dr. Fauci himself cannot cite a single paper which demonstrates that the masks work. And so this was, again, one of the big lies that we were told, and they just won't publicly admit it. What happens with oxygen deprivation? How much, what percentage of oxygen, breathing it in because of a mask or reduction in oxygen, can cause damage to the central nervous system or the brain? That hasn't been well studied. I think it's most important with people with underlying lung disease, so in people with COPD or emphysema or smokers, it may be much more of a serious problem than in healthy people. And obviously it depends upon for how long you wear the mask. So that has not been, you know, we know the CO2 goes up. The effect, you know, there's certain things people just don't want to study because they don't want to know the outcome. You know, if, you, if you're going to show it's going to be harmful, they're not going to study it. So unfortunately... There are not many studies. We know in terms of cognitive and development of our children that there's been a delayed development. That's without question. The IQ is lower, the developmental milestones. So how much of that is due to lockdowns and how much is due to mass? We just don't know. Finally, there is a lot of science on the importance of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. It's one of the best things you could do if you've had a stroke to prevent further damage to the brain, and especially the area around the swelling and the uh, uh, damage once a stroke has occurred. I would have thought that the pulmonologist would have insisted upon having multiple hyperbaric chambers available in hospitals for people who are having breathing difficulty. Your thoughts, please. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. So hyperbaric oxygen is really interesting because I thought it was the increased dissolved fraction of oxygen, but actually the pressure has very potent anti-inflammatory effects. So it's, it has an enormous effect on brain inflammation. Uh, it's, it's been shown to be used in post-traumatic brain injury in patients with Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And certainly in patients who have acute respiratory failure, it has a role. So there's really good data. There's in fact, in terms of long COVID. I think there's only one randomized control trial ever done in long COVID, and that was with hyperbaric oxygen, a study done in Israel and showed a dramatic benefit of hyperbaric oxygen in long COVID. So there's no question that it has a really important role. Obviously, it's, it's you know, resource intensive. It's a little bit logistically difficult, but absolutely no question. This should become part of standard of care and it should be offered to patients, you know, who, who have long COVID or vaccine injured who are struggling. So um, there, there, there's absolutely no question 
that uh, hyperbaric oxygen has a really important role. So, you know, what, what I can also tell you is, you know, we had a conference in Florida about two months ago on spike-related disease, and we had speakers on numerous topics, including hyperbaric oxygen. So those lectures are now available almost free of charge. If people go to the website, uh, they can make a donation or they can just watch these presentations on the management of spike-related disease. And one of them is actually a world expert talking on hyperbaric oxygen. He gave a very good lecture. So um, that, that's a resource. Could you, give, could you give us that resource, please? Yeah. So if they go to flccc.net, it's called Education on Demand. If they go to Education on Demand, they will see a whole list of lectures. They just need to register. And then they, will, they have access to about 12 different lectures on spike-related disease. So that's flccc.net. If you go to the section on Education on Demand, you will be able to register, and then you can choose a whole bunch of lectures. We thank you very much. Speaking as a journalist, a broadcaster, a scientist, I understand the importance of maintaining your honesty, your decency, your ethic for the consumer, even if the authorities who want to disbar you or take away your board certifications uh, want the public to have a different impression of you. The public will make up its own mind. And now more than ever, people are seeing how they've been misled and lied to. And this has been very helpful in allowing them to have a longer and healthier life. Thank you very much, Dr. Merrick, for being Thanks, with us. Thanks, Gary, because I think ultimately the truth will, will surface. You can't hide the truth forever. And I believe we are on the right side of truth and the right side of history. And you know, we, we have no vested interest and we will continue to speak the truth. Good for you. Thank you, Hey. Thank you. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you for watching the Progressive Commentary Hour.